Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of What is Black Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget. And today's episode, we're featuring the topic of raising biracial and multiracial children. We have a great guest and great conversation ahead. So enjoy this episode. So welcome, um, Dr. Gaither, um, to What is Black Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited um, to have you um, as our guest today. So today's episode, I wanted to dive in a little bit more about raising biracial and multiracial children. This topic is especially important to me being as I identify as a biracial African-American woman and have children who identify as African-American, but also have a multiracial heritage. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about that. I myself am biracial too. And I think I'm a a good example of what we call a me-searcher in the field. So someone who's decided to make her living by studying people like her with similar other mixed race experiences. So as you talk about your experience, can you share a little bit more your official title um, and some of your current current, um, research? Yeah, so I am currently an assistant professor in the psychology and neuroscience department at Duke University. I'm also a faculty affiliate at the Samuel Dubois Cook Center for Social Equity and the Center for Health and Society here. Um, So I've been researching biracial things basically my entire career, um, and I'd like to say my entire life as a biracial person. Um, But my lab, the Duke Identity Diversity Lab, focuses primarily on what are the powers behind having multiple identities. When we think about one identity versus another identity, how does that impact our behavior? And what are the impacts of being perceived as belonging to a certain group versus not? So these visual cues that people use when they meet someone new for the first time, how does this shape who we want to be our friend or who we want to date or how badly we may treat someone based on their physical appearance. So our lab focuses a lot on these multiple identity issues and the social identity threats that sometimes come with being a member of stigmatized groups in particular. So again, you, you shared a little bit about your background. Can you can you give a little bit more information about how your how your identity journey um, has been and how you conceptualize um, what is black has yeah, so, has been for you and how it's changed? Yeah, yeah. So this question, what is black? I think for me in particular is really complicated. And for those of you who have never Googled me before, you can Google me right now and realize that I look like a white person. Um, so my dad's black, my mom's white, and I always get the question, well, is your dad a real black man? And I I never really understand what they mean by that, except for, you know, from a visual appearance angle. And my dad is not an ambiguous looking black man. He is a black looking man, as stereotypical as you could imagine. Um, But that's sort of been my exposure to this, what is black question. I, I look white. I have white people hair, but I was raised by the black side of my family just as much as the white side of my family. And Half my toys growing up were white and half were black. And I really very much identify with the black community, even though I would never claim a black experience, right? I've never been pulled over for driving while black. I've never been followed in stores. Um, But my brother who looks more racially mixed than I do, he has faced some of those issues. And so I think growing up very hyper aware of the socialization differences that he and I got and just the social experiences that he and I face where people assume and accept the fact that he is part black. And I sort of have to constantly defend my blackness um, through my daily existence. And I think, um, I think that's important. Your experience, the experience that um, you, that you share with us, because I, th- I mean, I think I've had some similarities. Um, my brother, I'm biracial, but my brother, um, is 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 not identified as does not identify as biracial, 
And again, I think we have had different socializations. When I think also, and I know some of your research also talks about gender, I think being a, being a girl, being a female, looking the way that I do, and also my brother looking the way that he does, okay, that I think informed some of the way my parent, some way the parenting of my, you know, my parenting experiences, or as a child, my parents' experiences with me. And I think that definitely has, has trickled down and influenced how I parent. How does the how does our how does our children's environment and family help them to develop develop that concept of race? I know how I've parented, but your research, how do you think that has impacts on how parents can raise kids um, have their racial identity? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated question. And we recruit mixed race kids to our lab for our research all the time. And that's the number one question we get from parents of mixed race kids is, how do I raise them? How do I socialize them? What should I say or not say? And I don't think there's a universal answer. um, But we know racial and ethnic identity, particularly for minority kids, right, is significantly shaped by how our parents talk to us or what they prepare us for, right? This preparation for bias that Black and Latinos tend to experience a lot more growing up as kids than white kids, right? Um, but also how teachers treat kids in a classroom, the racial makeup of their neighborhood or their classroom also shapes how positively or how negatively a kid may feel about their racial identity. And there's not very much work on biracial kids socialization. Um, we haven't documented enough of what different tactics parents use, but a lot of it is based on how a kid ends up looking. So me and my brother, right, is a good example in line with what you're saying, right? I look white. It would be pointless for my parents to spend time lecturing me on not wearing a hoodie at certain time periods, right? And those kinds of things. And this intersection with being a woman, right? I'm not the stereotype expectation for what it means to be black. So a lot of psychology research argues that race is this gendered concept. And when I ask you all to think of a black person, most of you listening are probably going to think of a black man instantly, more so than a black woman. Same thing for an Asian person. You're going to think of an Asian woman more instantly than an Asian man. We have these expectations of what a person looks like from different racial groups. And that shapes how parents talk to their kids about race and what experiences they might have themselves. And I guess my last comment kind of related to your own approach to parenting. I always wished I looked blacker growing up because I felt like it would match how I actually identify internally. Um, But I know that that would have made my life more difficult in a lot of ways. And so it's this desire I had to give up my white privilege, my white passing privilege is always hard for me to talk about, but I've never thought that I looked outwardly how I feel on the inside. And I think that's something that's very common for mixed race kids to face. And transracially adopted kids is another group that our work is trying to extend out to for similar kinds of identity complexity issues. So, and I think, I think that goes back to my, like my, the underlying reason why I wanted to, to even develop this podcast is that this concept of race is very complex. It should seem simple, right? but it's really not. And then just trying to help parents kind of work through some of these, you know, these experiences, having, being a, being an African-American black parent, also having, um, you said, we talked about the intersectional intersectionality of gender, as well as I think um, different cultural experience, if you're American versus um, if your family comes from another country. Now, have you, have you found any differences in your research regarding that at all? Like in terms of the origins of um, that African-American or Black experience? Yeah, so immigrant status plays a huge role in what we call identity threat experiences. So we know that first and second generation immigrants, so either if you yourself have immigrated or if one of your parents um, has immigrated to the U.S., 
it tends to create a higher sense of identity threat for those kids and those family members because you're that close to your home or host culture from wherever that may be that you end up having this extra balancing act between your new American immigrant identity versus your home culture identity from another country. And that balancing act is very similar um, for biracial individuals that they're constantly balancing. Am I black enough in this context? White enough in this context? Do I have to choose one of my identities over the other? Or can I, you know, function flawlessly through these different contexts and situations? And so our lab in collaboration with Diana Sanchez at Rutgers University, we are just now starting to compare what we call bicultural identity denial experiences versus biracial identity denial experiences. So if I deny your American identity versus if I deny your black identity, does that lead to the same health consequences and psychological consequences um, for both of these groups? And this is all brand new research and there's not much work out there that's directly compared immigrant status, but we know that your views of culture and race directly shape what you teach your kids. Um, And language is a really important identity marker. So if you have another language besides English in your family, that passing down of that language is an important cultural marker too, and often serves as a division within the biracial communities of, well, are you black enough or Latino enough if you don't speak black or certain African dialects, or if you don't speak Spanish for those people who are mixed Latino? Man, I wish you were around <laughs> when I was, when I was growing up, because I think I would have had, you know, I would have worked through some issues. I wish um, I was around when I was growing yeah. up. So, you know, there we are. <laughs> yes. But I, but I think it's, a, I think it's important work. I mean, I think um, even growing up, I, I sort of felt, I mean, definitely, I don't even know if it's, if it's a duality anymore. It's like, it's like, can you, can you have a triality, right? I mean, like you said, there's so many different intersections um, of how you, how a person identifies. And, and I think, um, I think this just brings home that fact. I was wondering, you know, I wonder if for parents, they may not really realize how young children actually develop concepts of race or even understand the con understand, understand or start to start to see differences. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. When do kids develop their concepts of race? Yeah. So as you've already said, race is a super complicated construct. And I say it's a construct because we have literally, particularly in the US, right, we've constructed what it means to be black or white or Asian or Latino. We have these definitions and these expectations. And because of that, that's why race is kind of this ambiguous category. And it's all based on what we tell our kids about these different groups. Um, Gender is a lot easier of a concept for kids to grasp. So kids have a pretty firm understanding about how gender functions by the age of three. But race, because it is this more nuanced kind of category, we really don't find kids strong understanding of race and ethnicity until around the ages of five to six. Um, So you can see it's a two to three year difference on understanding gender as this very fixed category. You know, you take a kid into a store and there's the pink toy aisle and the blue toy aisle, right? And you tell your kids in the classroom, boys and girls line up. It's time to go out to play, right? We have these very concrete divisions in our language um, and just in our culture and our society that reinforces kids' gender um, binary, right? But for race, we don't ever say black kids line up and Asian kids line up, right? That would be completely inappropriate. Um, So they have to learn about race in different ways than than they learn about gender. And that's why it takes a little longer for it to form. Now, in terms of socialization, um, I've I've spoken with um, colleagues of mine who are pediatricians and are doing research on racial socialization. And how, how... how have you found that socialization impacts 
um, parents, parents' views of race, children's understanding of race. Yeah. So socialization, for those of you who might not know that term, because I know we've thrown it around a few times today, is really just how you talk to your kids about race and culture. Um, and there's a lot of work that shows that white parents tend to not talk about race and culture as much as minority parents. And, you know, it's not an intentionality. It's not like they're explicitly trying to avoid race. It's just because they themselves maybe aren't as well-versed, right, or don't have as much practice and exposure to minority experiences. Um, so there's a lot of socialization differences between white and minority families. Um, and socialization is more than just how you talk to your kids explicitly. There's the types of toys that you have or the types of television or media or iPad games or things like that that you play with your kids. Um, are those diverse representations or are they not? right? That's another form of socialization. And then there's also socialization in the classroom. So I also like to stress to people that it's not all on the parents. Your classrooms are also a huge source of information for your kids on a daily basis. And it's the types of posters that are up in that classroom. It's which students the teachers even call on versus don't call on. These behavioral markers are also things that are being highlighted in recent developmental research now that kids pick up on really easily. They see if you never call on kid X versus kid Y, and they also see if you as a parent cross the street when a certain person who looks a certain way is walking toward you. So these kind of implicit behavioral cues are another um, newly documented form of socialization that I think research is going to try and tackle a bit more going forward. And do you think that research will provide you know, information that can be translated to, to be put into practice, how teachers, because I know, I know there's more and more um, studies about how the impact of the, what the teacher looks like. Does the teacher identify racially? Um, there's a racial um, similarity or not that impacts educational engagement and status. And I, I don't know if that will necessarily change, but I'm wondering if educators have more of this understanding of this implicit bias um, that per- perhaps that could, that could help provide some, some equalizing or providing some equity that some kids may not have because of um, the disadvantage of not having uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, multiracial um, educators. Yes. I mean, I think these minority groups, right, they're still minorities numerically right now in society. So we simply don't have enough minorities in the U.S. yet for them to be distributed, right, within healthcare settings, education settings. We need diverse people everywhere, right? So I don't think it's just an education problem. We find bias in healthcare settings. We find bias in judicial settings, right? So we need people of color everywhere, in my opinion. Um, But they're not ever going to be represented in the same ways as as white people in these positions, at least for, you know, the near future, I think. Um, But as you mentioned, there's a ton of education research that really strongly argues that Kids learn better in schools and contexts where they have a teacher or a principal or someone that kind of matches their own racial or ethnic heritage because those kids can then see themselves in someone else, right? It's this aspiration. And we ran a study with biracial kids because my question was, if you're a biracial kid, does that mean you then also need a biracial teacher in order to learn in an environment, in which case all biracial kids would be screwed, right? Because there's not that many biracial people yet. But we, what we ended up finding, and this was a study with four to eight-year-olds done in the Boston area, is that biracial kids are actually a little more flexible in who they're willing to learn from. So most minority kids and white kids learn a pretty strong white is good bias in our society. They prefer white friends. They prefer white teachers um, up until a certain age point. But we don't find that the same white bias exists with biracial kids. And we recruited both black, white, biracial kids and Asian, white, biracial kids. 
And they were both much more willing to learn from black and Asian teachers compared to monoracial black and monoracial Asian kids. So again, I think this is speaking to the fact that if we expose our kids to diverse backgrounds, even if your kid is not biracial, right? This exposure to diversity and diverse environments is what makes kids' concepts about race and social categories a bit more flexible. So I just wanted to um, circle back to how, I guess, just going back to parenting. Um, and we talked briefly about a recent article in The Atlantic by Myra Jones Taylor, where she talks about, well, the title of the article is called Helping My Fair-Skinned Son Embraces Blackness. And, you know, it, it was circling, circulating in Twitter and social media. And I thought it was a very impactful article um, to hear this mom speak about her experiences, identifying as an African American mom, but her, her son doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have the, the phenotypic experience of um, being African American, doesn't look quote unquote African American. And I was wondering in terms of what your take on the article was and how this article you think presents an opportunity um, to, to kind of provide information to families that are raising biracial, multiracial children. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I resonated a lot with that article personally, um, because there were some photo references for those of you that haven't read the article and my own coping mechanism for looking white and passing as white, even though I am half black, is to carry around a family photo in my wallet every day of my life. I literally have it here on my desk as I'm recording this podcast with you right now. It's been a really nice tool for me to use to bring out when people question my blackness and my heritage. Um, so I think this is very similar to a lot of experiences of parents of mixed race kids when they don't physically match what their kid looks like. Uh, for me growing up, my dad, people assumed he was kidnapping me when we were walking around the shopping mall together. Um, people assumed he was my driver picking me up from school and there'd be no way that he could possibly be my father. And that mismatch between a parent and a child can really take a pretty strong psychological toll, particularly on a kid, but the parent too, right? And that you're constantly defending, this is my biological child who has the audacity and the right to question that relationship. But we have these fixed expectations that we should all physically match what our parents look like. Um, but this mixed race demographic, we're kind of messing all of these expectations up, right? We are introducing this new form of racial ambiguity. And I think on average, you know, research would argue that exposure to mixed race people over time might be shifting some of our expectations about what it means to be black or white in our society, right? They're sort of blurring the lines between these racial groups. Um, so I thought this article was really nicely written. And I think there's probably a number of biracial parents and parents of mixed race kids who have felt similarly or isolated similarly white and whether their kid has to choose one parent versus the other and showing up for back to school night as a way to reaffirm their racial group membership. Yeah, I'm hoping over time that, like you said, because there's there's a changing demographic, it'll be a slow change in demographic that um, that they, these sorts of insights from parents experiences, your research will help inform um, parents, you know, in some ways, I mean, I'm still I'm still raising my youngest son is um, is a teenager. So I'm still raising him. But I think he's getting to the age he's 17. And I know some of your research um, talked about when kids go to college or maybe that college age later adolescence is maybe when sometimes they may have a strong they may, de may determine what their identities are, racial identities. So, you know, in terms of choosing um, social clubs or fraternities, sororities, um, associations with peers. 
Yeah, so college is a really important identity period. I mean, it's between the ages of three and eight when race is still forming as a category. But by the time you are a college-age student, you really do know who you are much better than when you're a little six or seven-year-old, right? Um, college is also, if you're moving to a four-year institution of some sort, it usually marks the first time that you're leaving your family, you're leaving your home city, your home culture, and you're naturally exposed to people who are different for the first time. And because the United States is still so racially segregated, um, for me and my own work, we look a lot at cross-race roommate relationships and how that shifts kids and students' identities once they enter this college space and access to different student groups. For me personally, I never had a strong mixed-race identity until college because there was a mixed-race swirl group on campus. And that was one of the first times when I realized I had a group that was like me and confused like me and we all looked different, but we could all get along. And so those identity experiences, particularly for racial and ethnic minority students, are pretty prominent one in shaping how proudly someone may feel about their racial identity or racial background. Okay, that's great to know. Because I, I mean, I think I have I've had some similar experiences with my older son um, as he transitioned to college. Yeah, I mean, you get questioned all the time, right? Or you now have a whole new set of friends that might not know your mixed race in particular, right? And so they're going to ask you, oh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What are your parents like? Or even those pictures you put in your dorm room, right? Um, That was a big sign to me as a, a freshman in college that my roommate knew instantly I was mixed race because I had photos of my family, right? So these small little details that I think the average person doesn't think about To a mixed race kid in college, those details can be a pretty strong disclosure marker of an identity that may or may not be visible to a person's roommate. So you shared a lot of great insights for parents. I was wondering if you had any additional insights um, of how ideas to help parents um, raise healthy kids in the intersection of race, culture, and identity. Yeah, so I think the the number one piece of advice I always give parents who come into our lab here at Duke is to really just let your kids identify how they want to identify. I think most of mixed race research to date would argue that when you see increases in depression or anxiety or other types of mental health problems, it's usually very strongly associated with the experiences of identity denial or this forced experience of I only can be one thing at a time. I have to choose one of my racial or ethnic identities over the other. I can never truly be myself as a biracial person. Um, So it's that forced sense of of choosing one identity that we know is linked so directly with negative health outcomes. And this starts very young in development. And so as much as a parent may want their kid to identify as X versus Y, really letting that kid figure out who it is that they are racially and ethnically is the, in my opinion, the best way to approach parenting and socialization. So this has been a great conversation, um, Dr. Gaither. I think this information hopefully will help parents um, foster, help help their children foster a positive identity, whether biracial or multiracial. So thank you so much for your insights. And if people want to learn more about your research um, or learn more about you, where um, can they learn to get more information? Yeah. And if anyone's local in the North Carolina area, we're always recruiting families and adult participants in for all of our studies too. Um, So you can Google the Duke Identity and Diversity Lab and you can find our lab website there. We have um, accessible copies of a lot of our published research. Uh, We also have a lab Facebook page. You can find us on Facebook and then I'm on Twitter as well and tweet all kinds of diversity related articles and some of our labs findings and stuff there as well. All right. Thank you once again, Dr. Gaither. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Special thank you to our guest, Dr. Sarah Gaither. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, where you can also find other great episodes. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.